Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. David Scott Amquist was born on February 24, 1993, to Scott and Nancy Amquist. He grew up in rural Kokata, Minnesota, and graduated from Dassel Kokata High School in 2011. David attended the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth and had worked at Ron's Service Station in Dassel. He later traveled to work in the North Dakota oil fields and loved it and regretted returning to Minnesota. However, he kept a souvenir container of the Bakken oil that he often used in his job. David, who was described as a religious, genuine, and kind-hearted man, would meet and marry a woman named Emily Manninen. Unfortunately, the marriage would quickly go downhill, resulting in a horrific tragedy. The couple married in the spring of 2017 and lived in apartment 352 in the Plymouth Commons apartment complex in Plymouth, Minnesota. Less than a year later, David wanted to split and divorce and told his father his marriage was toxic and his wife was manipulative. He then suddenly began exhibiting unusual behavior to the point that his parents brought him to the ER and had him tested for drugs. However, he was not on drugs and instead was strangely experiencing acute psychosis and according to his parents, David had never suffered any mental illness. Nevertheless, David was hospitalized for 10 days and discharged with a treatment plan and medication. David told his doctor that his employer required them to wear a respirator because of potential exposure to chlorine and epoxy. David admitted to being non-compliant with the respirator and wondered if that could have led to his episode and hospitalization. Although David had briefly shown some signs of schizophrenia, he was not diagnosed with it. He also denied any thoughts of wanting to harm himself or anyone else. The report stated that his doctors did not feel he was a threat to himself or others. At this point in the marriage, even with him being hospitalized, his wife was allegedly unhelpful or caring during David's treatment. Once back home, David began having a similar episode, and his mother would witness his wife Emily slapping him in the face and shouting while he seemed to be in a trance on all fours on the floor. David's mother became very upset, and Emily would try and explain that it had worked before. She would later admit that she often smacked him in the face and grabbed him, forcing him to look at her. David was known to be non-confrontational, non-violent, and a somewhat passive man. 
He made plans to move back in with his parents, but was concerned about how his wife would respond and was prepared for her to freak out. Hours later, a neighbor of the Elmquists called 911 and so did Emily. Both callers were calling to report a fire. A maintenance worker would be first on the scene after hearing the fire alarm and entered the apartment. He would later say that the apartment door was unlocked and he was positive about this because he didn't have any apartment keys on him at the time. This vital fact would come into play later. He then extinguished a small fire in the apartment's kitchen before he realized that David was completely ablaze and sprayed him with the fire extinguisher. Minutes later, the police arrived and allegedly mistakes were made and a cover-up of the errors began. Instead of quickly getting aid to David, the police propped open the door and established a command center in the apartment across from David's apartment. They did this because Emily told them that David had knives and might be dangerous instead of begging them to help him. At this point, David was suffering but still alive, and the police allegedly told firefighters to stand down and hold off because it wasn't safe to go in. Finally, the officers yelled for him to come out with his hands up. It's unclear, however, if, at that point, the police had been informed that David had been on fire, but the smoke in the apartment was visible. The officers shot out the apartment's windows to allow smoke to escape. Later, David stumbled out of the door and collapsed, struggling to breathe nearly 40 minutes after the first 911 call came in. Sadly, he would later die at the hospital. Emily would tell authorities that David had woken her up and was covered in some oil. She claimed that he told her it was time to go, pushed her out of the apartment, and locked the door. Despite quickly being forced out of the apartment, she somehow had her cell phone, David's truck keys, and their dog. She said after being pushed out of the apartment, she quickly saw smoke coming from under the door. As for David's death, it was determined that he had suffered burns on over 90% of his body, but more on the right side than the left. Strangely, a large area on both his wrist was utterly free of any burns, meaning those areas were covered or protected at the time of the blaze. His arms might have been resting on the sink edge when he was doused with oil and when the fire began. The width of the sink and the counter edge was similar to the size of the unburned area. One possible theory is he was leaning on the sink to flush out an accelerant that had been thrown on him. There was also no accelerant or burns on either wrist. Shockingly, his death has been ruled a suicide by medical examiner Lorraine Jackson. Death by self-immolation is extremely rare in the U.S. and accounts for less than 1% of suicides. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office failed to make any notations about these prominent, protected areas on David's wrist in the autopsy report, despite being basic pathologist standards set forth by the College of American Pathologists. And when David's father brought this to his attention, instead of doing further research, the medical examiner allegedly stated that he must have been wearing gloves. However, his hands were severely burned. This abnormal finding was not further investigated until David's parents hired their own investigator. 
Although there were traces of marijuana on the toxicology report, there were no drugs or alcohol. Nevertheless, some people quickly became suspicious of Emily's involvement in the fire. His father, Scott Amquist, hired fully credentialed independent fire investigator Steve Thorne to examine photographs of David and the apartment. In addition, authorities never located the lighter that his wife said he used to ignite himself. It was not in any of the many photos taken. His wife later claimed that she and her mother found it a week after the incident, but she had allegedly also said that she never returned to the apartment following the incident. In the aftermath photos, it is clear that one of the stove's burners is on the floor and two of the stove knobs are turned to the on position, and a rag or oven mitt has been removed off the burner. A wooden bench, usually at the edge of the kitchen, had also been moved. Many speculate she moved it to stand behind David at the sink and poured the oil over his head. Maybe he was in a trance, overwhelmed, and trying to stay calm as he had done before. Scott believes the police planted a knife near the chair where David had been sitting to cover up the massive delay in providing him medical help. The blade was void of signs that the knife had been close to a fire and appeared to have been placed on top of the sooted areas as an afterthought. In fact, despite the fact that three separate agencies took photos of the knife which played no role in the incident, but failed to take pictures of the bathroom where David allegedly took two baths that night and where his wife went to clean up. Although the police chief reported that firefighters rescued David, Scott said that wasn't true, and the police claimed to have a brief standoff with David as they believed he was lying in wait. However, the police reports state that the delay was due to David not acting rationally, and therefore, it wouldn't have been safe for any personnel to enter the apartment. But again, David was literally on fire and not in a standoff with police. It would be nearly three years before his parents could view the police report. It's also noted 11 times in the statement that the door was unlocked. The police also changed their claim regarding the knife. They indicated in the report that they felt it played no role in the events of that night. His family started a petition at change.org hoping for Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison Minnesota Governor Walls, and Mayor Kelly Slavic to hire a special prosecutor to investigate their son's death. They would appreciate additional signatures, and I will put the link in the description. The DA would inform David's father that he has no authority over the local police or fire departments. Many speculate that his wife became enraged at the mention of divorce and David planning to leave the next day, and she responded by killing him. Also, many believe that her family has helped her cover up what she allegedly did. It raises a red flag that she claims he forced her out of the apartment, despite having plans to move out the next day himself. Many speculate that the episode of psychosis he experienced before the incident resulted from abuse or trauma at the hands of his wife. Also, where is the lighter used to light the fire she claimed to have taken a week later? It's likely that if the lighter had indeed been there, authorities would have collected it or noted it in the reports. Also, why would she have taken a lighter used to kill her husband? 
She also tells the dispatcher she only saw smoke, not flames, yet conveys to the dispatcher he set himself on fire. So, if David had pushed her out of the apartment and she did not see any flames, how did she know he set himself on fire when she made the call? David's loved ones feel that his death was treated as simply a crazy man who lit himself on fire, and David lost any chance of a fair and honest investigation. Although this is speculation, many believe she doused him with the oil, used a lighter to ignite the oil, and ran out of the apartment. Michelle Norris was born in April of 1981 to William and Julie Norris. At the age of seven, her parents separated, and Michelle and two of her brothers were living with their grandmother on Kendall Street in Central Falls, Rhode Island. The state had temporarily placed them with their grandmother due to their mother having an infection and being unable to properly take care of them at the time. On May 28, 1988, Memorial Day weekend, Michelle and her brothers, Billy and Nathan, were playing near their home at the playground behind the Captain G. Harold Hunt Elementary School. The playground was in view from the window of their grandmother's house where they lived. Her brothers, aged 5 and 10, left the playground with a cousin to go get some candy. One of the brothers would later say he saw Michelle in the car with their dad. Later on, when the kids were supposed to be home, Michelle never showed up. Her grandmother walked over to the playground and questioned those nearby. That's when she discovered that Michelle's father, William, had taken her. William was not close to his children and was allegedly an alcoholic. He reportedly appeared nervous when questioned and said he didn't know where his daughter was. Finally, he gave the police a statement and said he had picked her up from the playground and taken her to the store for candy. He said he did this once every week or so. Four days later, on June 1, 1988, her body was found less than a mile from the playground in a very isolated wooded area near a creek. She had been taken to that spot and tragically sexually assaulted, beaten, and suffocated. Her clothes were folded and lying nearby. Years later, Michelle's father wrote a letter to detectives with new statements to clarify the events of the day his daughter went missing. He claimed that after he took her by the store for candy, he dropped her off outside her grandmother's house. He said he didn't see her go inside and drove away as she talked to her friend Tammy and a man across the street on a porch that he didn't know. For some reason, these claims were left out of his original statement and no one reported seeing him drop her off. It's unclear if he initially left these details out due to not realizing how important they were or if he later added them to shift the focus of the investigation. In 1988, Michelle was one of five young children kidnapped and murdered in the Providence area. However, DNA would not help solve these cases because at that time, police had not yet implemented DNA analysis. However, there was one possible suspect, a local sex offender, an alleged sadistic pedophile named Joseph Albert Pelland. Pelland was convicted of sexually assaulting his stepdaughter, numerous other young girls, and his own sister. It turns out, Michelle's father was telling the truth. Michelle had been dropped off and was last seen talking with her best friend, Tammy. 
Also nearby was Tammy's stepfather, who was none other than Joseph Albert Pelland. Pelland was later convicted of sexually assaulting Tammy numerous times as a young girl, similar to Michelle. He threatened to kill her and threatened to kill her mother if either of them ever told the police what he had done. As she got older and braver, she would eventually report it to authorities. Shockingly, he never served any jail time following a plea deal. Michelle spent a lot of time at his home playing with her friend Tammy, and as soon as Michelle went missing, he suddenly forced his family to move out with him to a different house away from Michelle's grandmother's home. He also allegedly confessed to Michelle's murder to a family member, claiming he had gone too far. It is highly speculated that he is Michelle's killer as she was violated the same way he had repeatedly done to his own wife, stepdaughter, and likely many others. Yet, he remains a free man in Rhode Island, and as of September 2022, this case remains unsolved. Amanda Michelle Thacker was born on February 22, 1987. At the age of 28, she was living in the Canyon Park subdivision in Onalaska, Texas, with her boyfriend, Clint James. She had recently divorced, and her children were living with her mother. On December 8, 2015, Amanda's mother received a text message from her daughter, as she usually did. However, the next day, Amanda allegedly made a post on her social media account and then all communication with her mother and others, as well as her routine social media post, suddenly stopped. Amanda did not own a vehicle and would suddenly vanish into thin air. Her boyfriend claimed she left a note saying she wanted to get away for a while. But she had no history of leaving without saying anything and was not known to abuse drugs. About six months after she went missing, her boyfriend passed away. He allegedly made comments about her disappearance, but then lawyered up and never answered any questions from the police. He was, however, charged with tampering with evidence for disposing of Amanda's belongings that possibly contained DNA evidence. Soon after her disappearance, he was accused of murdering a man named Jimmy Wilkes. With failing health and expensive health care required, Polk County released him on a bond to his father's care. He was soon hospitalized at the Veterans Hospital in Houston, Texas. He died at the age of 36, taking with him any information he may have had about Amanda's whereabouts or where her remains could be found. Several years after her disappearance, human remains were discovered between Onalaska and Livingston. Her loved ones were hopeful that they belonged to Amanda so they could finally put her to rest. Unfortunately, they had to wait several months to learn that the remains did not belong to Amanda. As of September 2022, Amanda has never been located and this case remains unsolved. Jack Denver Morris Sr. was born on April 17, 1931. Sadly, on February 23, 1980, he lost his wife Edna and his sons Kenneth and Jack Jr. in a house fire that he managed to escape. At the age of 63, Jack was a U.S. Army veteran of the Korean War. 
He and his second wife, Alma Louise, lived a short drive from Knoxville in Sharps Chapel, Union County, Tennessee. Their new home was just completed near Norris Lake, and they were looking forward to enjoying it. They were very well known in the community because they owned and operated Morris Quick Stop, a small local convenience store down Sharps Chapel Road that sold anything from beer and snacks to fishing bait and hunting license. On Sunday, December 11, 1994, the couple returned about 6 p.m. following a weekend on a gambling junket with another couple and allegedly returned with extra cash. The next morning in the early morning hours, about 4 a.m., an acquaintance of the couple was headed to work when he made a grim discovery. The couple's Isuzu Trooper was oddly parked at the end of their long gravel driveway with the SUV's back door open. Curious, the neighbor took a closer look and found Jack's deceased body. It appeared he had possibly been reaching in the back seat of his SUV. Jack always kept a weapon on him at all times, so that could mean he was reaching in the back seat for his firearm, which he kept under the back seat when he was shot. His wife, Louise, was discovered shot to death about a hundred yards away in the woods. It appeared as if her hands were tied behind her back when she was shot because she was lying face down with her hands palm up on her back, but the alleged ties had been removed. During the investigation, it was discovered that dinner had been prepared inside the home, but had not been eaten yet. There were three place settings on the table, so it appeared that they had expected someone to join them for dinner, someone that possibly turned on them. The neighbor who discovered the scene had spent the weekend with his wife and the Morris couple on the gambling junket. Initially, there were a couple persons of interest in the case, but no one has ever been arrested. As of September 2022, it's been nearly three decades since the double homicide occurred, but with no further leads, this case remains unsolved. On August 1, 2013, partial remains were found by workers surveying near an oilfield well site. The remains were located near South County Road 1160 and FM 1213, south of Midland, Texas. Testing revealed that the remains belonged to a female, likely between the ages of 14 and 21 years old. It was determined that the female was the victim of a homicide, but authorities could not determine her identity. DNA was collected from the remains, and the results were entered into CODIS, but no matches were found, and she sadly became a Jane Doe. Then, seven years later in 2020, the Texas Rangers and the Midland County District Attorney's Office sent the remains to Parabon and DNA Labs International for advanced DNA analysis and learned the victim was of African-American descent. Then a genetic genealogist uploaded the DNA profile to public databases and successfully used forensic genealogy to determine the Jane Doe's name. The name of the possible victim was then given to detectives, and the Texas Rangers interviewed multiple potential relatives to gather family information. Then in May 2022, the mother of the possible victim was located in the Midland area. She stated that her 16-year-old daughter, Sylvia Smith, had gone missing on February 14, 2000, and she reported her as a runaway four days later. 
Family members provided their DNA to determine if the remains belonged to Sylvia, and on June 9, 2022, 22 years after she went missing, it was announced that the DNA was a match. Sylvia was a student at Lee High School and worked at a Golden Corral in Midland, the same city where she lived and where her remains were found. It's unclear how her identity took so long to determine, seeing that she was reported missing in the same city she was found in. Either way, there are very few details available about Sylvia other than where she went to school, worked, and lived. There's also no pictures available of Sylvia at this time, possibly at the request of her family. A homicide investigation is now underway, and a reward for information is being offered. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.